Good morning, brothers and sisters. Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25 says that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are the God who knows. You are the God who sees. That our groanings don't fall on deaf ears, but you are attentive to our cries. And as we find in our Lord Jesus Christ, you become personally involved. We bless you, Lord, as the God who knows. Amen. Last week, we began our sermon series on the life of Moses, which largely centers around the book of Exodus. And, of course, Exodus is a religious story about miracles and covenants and the revelation of the one true God, the great I Am. But we must never forget that it's also a story about social liberation. Amen? Moses is, in his own way, an abolitionist. And what's more, God is presented as an abolitionist who hears the groaning of the oppressed and is moved to action. One of the greatest abolitionists in American history uh, and an inspiring man of God in his own right was a Quaker by the name of John Woolman. Woolman lived from 1720 to 1772 during the colonial era. And you can read about his life in the Journal of John Woolman, which has become a spiritual classic, and it's such a great read. I commend it to you. During his lifetime, Woolman traveled broadly and preached against slavery and the mistreatment of Native Americans, cruelty to animals, and all forms of economic injustice. And along the way, Woolman personally convinced many Quakers by prayer and force of will to free their slaves, and in some cases, he convinced them to pay backlogged wages. And through Woolman's ceaseless efforts, slavery was practically abolished among the colonial Quakers even before the Revolutionary War. I'm talking 90 years before the Civil War. But Woolman had more than moral reasons to exhort his brethren to release their African slaves. He was also operating from a deep theological conviction that the God of the Bible, the God who freed the Israelites from the heavy yoke of the Egyptians, was on the side, not of the English colonialist, he was on the side of the oppressed. He writes, many slaves on this continent are oppressed and their cries have reached the ears of the Most High. Such are the purity and certainty of His judgments that He cannot be partial in our favor. In infinite love and goodness, He hath opened our understanding from one time to another concerning our duty toward this people, and it is not a time for delay. In other words, Woolman believed that the prayers of the slaves were actually precious in the sight of the Almighty. And unless his fellow Englishmen acted quickly to rectify their injustices, a day of reckoning would come upon them. 
And I hardly need to remind you that within a century, woman's warning would come to pass. The Civil War would become by far the bloodiest war in American history. And as we arrive in Exodus 2 today, this ancient story is perched on just such a moment. It presents a window into the oppression of the Israelites under Pharaoh. It's a warning before the reckoning. And we're also introduced to our hero, Moses. No longer the helpless infant of chapter 1, Moses is presented here in the developmental stage, so to speak, of his calling as a great liberator. In Exodus 2, Moses is presented as a man of justice, as a cross-cultural figure, and ultimately as a flawed savior. And we'll look at each of these three things in turn. The first thing is that we notice that Moses is a man of justice. We see this quality on display in two successive scenarios. In the first, we see it in his role as a kind of vigilante policeman in Egypt in verses 11 through 15a. And then second, in his role as the chivalrous protector of the daughters of rule in Midian in verses 15b through 22. And in both cases, Moses displays a strong personal inclination toward justice. Does he not? Let's start from the top. Verse 11 says, One day when Moses had grown up, and we just heard in Acts 7.23, the first Christian martyr Stephen identifies Moses as being around 40 years old at this point from Jewish tradition. And continuing on, it says that Moses went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now notice this basic idea, this basic repetition that Moses saw the injustice around him. It says he looked on their burdens and he saw, same Hebrew verb, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Now one thinks of the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the priest and the Levite choose to not see the man who had been beaten and left half dead, even making a decision to walk on the other side of the road. Whereas it says in Luke 10.33 that the Samaritan saw him and had compassion. Here Moses is like the good Samaritan who refuses to turn a blind eye to human suffering. And this is all the more impressive when we realize that Moses lived a life of relative privilege, right? Being the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, it would have been so easy, so personally convenient for Moses to turn a blind eye to the suffering of his brethren. But Moses doesn't do that. Like the good Samaritan, Moses sees and has compassion. And what about us? What about us, Christian? When we encounter people in need, do we turn the blind eye? When we encounter, I'm not just talking about homeless people who ask you for cash outside of Publix, but think of your elderly neighbor that no one pays attention to, or the depressed coworker who's having marriage troubles, or the immigrant who needs help getting a work visa, or the neglected children in Tallahassee. There are so many people who need God's people to see them and to have compassion. As we read on, we find Moses' heart for justice again on display as he confronts the two Hebrews who were struggling together in verse 13. Notice, notice that Moses doesn't just confront them both like generically. 
it says that he specifically seeks out the man in the wrong. And here the Hebrew word rasha, which is legal terminology, is used for the man in the wrong. And thus it rings again with connotations of justice. Finally, Moses' innate sense of right and wrong is on display in the next scene as well in Midian. Now up to this point in the Bible, we've learned that wells are a good place to find a wife. <laughs> See, for example... The story of Rebecca in Genesis 24 or Rachel in Genesis 29, the well is like the ancient Near Eastern hookup spot. <laughs> and ultimately, that's what this story is about too. But before we get there, we find Moses bravely protecting Rule's seven daughters from violent shepherds. And we don't know whether there were two shepherds or ten, but either way, Moses was outnumbered. And it says in verse 17 that Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. I mean, what a mensch. <laughs> Not only was Moses courageous standing up to the shepherds who were mistreating the woman, but he was also chivalrous, sticking around afterwards to water these ladies' flocks. No wonder Rule, the priest of Midian, was eager to see one of his daughters married off to Moses. And this brings us to our next point. The second thing we learn about Moses in Exodus 2 is the significance of his cross-cultural heritage, as Sarah just alluded to. This great liberator of the Hebrews, with, he was ethnically Jewish, but he was culturally Egyptian. This is by no means a theme of minor importance in the story. Indeed, when Pastor John was on his sabbatical, he spent time engaging a book called Hyphenating Moses by Federico Alfredo Roth, which explores Moses' bicultural upbringing at length. So he was weaned by his own Israelite mother around the age of three or four. So Moses most likely learned Hebrew as his first language. He was adopted by an Egyptian princess, verse 10, Moses was given a name that had linguistic roots in both Hebrew and in Egyptian. He was raised in the court of Pharaoh and thus learned by osmosis the kind of speech and decorum that would later be required of him in his great confrontations with the king. In fact, Moses would eventually become so culturally Egyptian, did you notice this? In his language and attire that the Midianite woman mistakenly identify him as an Egyptian. In verse 19, indeed, Moses experienced a reality common dis commonly described by those who are bicultural or biracial, namely that he was too Hebrew for Egypt and too Egyptian to be recognized as a Hebrew among the Midianites. Not only that, but Moses would go on to have a biracial son with his Midianite wife. And yet somehow, Despite his years in Pharaoh's court, Moses' Jewish roots continued to have significance for him. Listen again to verse 11, which says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So in this brief introduction to this next phase of Moses' life, we hear the phrase, his people, his people, repeated twice. So for Moses, there was something crucial about his sense of identification with his own people. So he may have been mostly Egyptian by culture, 
But in time, he would learn to worship the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the creator God who had chosen Israel, not just for themselves, but to be a blessing to all nations. And that's really the point that the scriptures eventually lead us to. Not that God wants all people to become tribalistic in our thinking or to believe that the Israelites were some kind of superior human beings. The point is that through the Jewish people and ultimately through the Messiah, the world would come to better understand our common humanity. Amen? Here at Incarnation, one of the most beautiful things that God has done is to bring many marriages across ethnicities. I think we've probably married about 20 people, and over half of those weddings have been marriages across ethnicities. Indeed, I'll be officiating a wedding between a young Japanese-American man and a Norwegian woman in just a few months. And these couples can look at Moses as a kind of hyphenated hero, as one who blazed the trail in cross-cultural marriage and having bicultural children while at the same time maintaining his own ethnic identity. Now, of course, you may know that as the biblical story continues to unfold, the law of the Lord will prohibit the Israelites from intermarrying with surrounding people. But let's get this straight, internet trolls. This prohibition was always for religious and never for racial reasons. Indeed, like their founder Moses, the Israelites were always permitted to marry people of any race, provided that their spouses freely, not coerced, freely shared in their faith in the one true God. This is because for the Israelites, as well as for Christians in the New Covenant, where this prohibition continues, God was to be at the center of their lives and the center of their most important relationship with their spouse, spouse at the center of their child rearing and not some kind of take it or leave it peripheral consideration as the world would have us view these things. That's because the Lord himself is supposed to be at the center of our identity as believers, not ethnicity, as important as that might be in its own place, or nationality, or political affiliation, or God help us, our favorite college football team. (laughs) The Reverend Bob Ayers is visiting today from Gainesville. (laughs) Amen, Bob. Come in peace. And as Exodus continues to unfold, Moses will show us, divine revelation will show us what it looks like for God to literally be at the center of Hebrew life and identity. But before we get too carried away in our praise of Moses in this passage as a man of justice and as a hyphenated hero, we need to look at a third and important theme in this passage, which is that Moses was a flawed savior. He was a flawed savior. You know, one of the best things to happen in 2020, and of a pretty crummy year overall, right, was that ESPN released the documentary The Last Dance about Michael Jordan and the 1990 Chicago Bulls. (laughs) Now, I've always been a Michael Jordan fan, and what that documentary did was establish two things, okay? First, that Michael Jordan was certainly the greatest basketball player of all time. Don't be a hater. I don't want to hear anything about LeBron, okay? I've lived through both of them, 
okay? The film don't lie. Jordan is the goat. But anyway, the second thing that the documentary established is that Michael Jordan has problems. I mean, the guy was completely addicted to competition, completely unwilling to lose at anything, even flipping coins, to the point that it was pretty much pathological. Now, Jordan may have been the greatest of all time, but he was a flawed hero, as heroes often are. I don't say this to cast dispersions on the man, because we find that Moses is no exception. Look back with me at how he dealt with the Egyptian beating the Hebrew man. Here, Moses uses his sight once again in verse 12, not simply to stare compassionately at oppression, but instead to make sure that the coast was clear. Verse 12 says, he looked, same Hebrew verb as in verse 11, this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. I was talking with Deacon David earlier this week, who's a police officer, and he agreed that it's not an exaggeration to say that this was an act of premeditated murder. It wasn't simply that Moses accidentally hit the man too hard. It says he struck him down. And it wasn't simply a crime of pure passion. Moses weighed the situation, looking this way and that. Don't let Prince of Egypt whitewash this for you. <laughs> Moses, perhaps the greatest hero in the Bible outside of Jesus, was a murderer. What's more, he hid the body afterward, guys, which would have taken digging and time and sweat. I mean, picture the scene here. Indeed, one is reminded of Adam and Eve back in the garden sewing fig leaves together to cover over their own sense of guilt and shame. While Moses may have been the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, he didn't have the authority to act as a vigilante policeman over Egypt. This is made clear by Pharaoh's reaction in verse 15. For this reason, Moses becomes a fugitive. And the name of his firstborn son, Gershom, in verse 22, becomes an enduring reminder to Moses of his banishment from the land of his birth. But perhaps more incriminating is the reaction of his Hebrew kinsman in verse 14 who asks, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And at this point, I think the blood must have drained from Moses' face. He became afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. Moses stood accused by his own sense of right and wrong, by his own conscience, the fig leaf couldn't cover it up. So yes, Moses is a kind of savior in this passage. And this foreshadows his future role in the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt. But he's clearly a flawed savior. I wonder if any of you have ever had the opportunity to be someone's hero maybe as a coach or a parent or a favorite teacher or even a hero in the faith. One thing I can guarantee, if you've ever been a hero, you've only ever been a flawed hero, like Moses. And that's not to put any of you down or discourage you from stepping out in the way that God is calling you, just as he called Moses. 
but it's just the reality of our human life on this side of the fall. Amen? We're all broken. We're all sinful. We all have parts of our lives that we try to cover with fig leaves that we unsuccessfully try to bury in the sand only to have them resurface at the worst possible moment. There's only ever been one hero, one Savior who did it perfectly, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, his very name means God saves. At his birth in Matthew 1.21, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and told him that Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus in Hebrew, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. And friends, that's a lot harder of a thing to save us from than physical oppression. In other words, Jesus came to save us in our most intimate and internal places. He came to save us from ourselves, from our sins. You can't go to Moses with your sins. He's a flawed savior. You can't trust him with that. You can't go to your football coach or your favorite teacher for that kind of interior work. But no matter how ashamed you feel, no matter how distant from God, no matter how much you feel like a bruised reed, you can go to Jesus with your sin. Sometimes we're afraid to go to him. Sometimes we say, I need to get my life together first. We're afraid that we're going to bother him or worse. And Jesus is like, beloved, my name is Savior. This is, this is what I do. Come to me. I long to save you. That's what I came for, to seek and save the lost. But his name doesn't simply mean Savior, does it? It means God saves. Jesus is the divine Savior. And as we read Exodus 2, Moses' own flaws speak to the need for God himself to intervene in the story. And that's exactly what we see being introduced at the end of the chapter in verses 23 through 25. Now, this will be a key theme throughout the rest of Exodus, but let's look here before we close. Because up to this point, the presence of God has not really been evident in the story. But now the real hero is introduced it says that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. It's not even clear whether their cry was a prayer or just a primal cry for help into the ether. But either way, it says that their cry for rescue from slavery, really, really their cry for a savior, came up to God and God heard their groanings. The God of justice heard their cry. And it says that God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob. And then the passage ends on this very mystifying note in verse 25. God saw the people of Israel. There's our Hebrew verb to see again. And God knew. What could this mean? What's implied by this phrase that has a verb but no object? God knew? Well, God knew what? I think it might be helpful to tackle this question from both like a zoom in and a zoom out perspective. Now, the zoom in answer has to do with the context of the book of Exodus. Flipping back with me to Exodus 1, verse 8, we find this ominous statement. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
Now, the end of the story of Genesis records how the people of Israel ended up in Egypt in the first place and how Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, Israel, had great favor with the Pharaoh of his day and how God used Joseph as a flawed savior to rescue both the Egyptian and Israelite population alike from starvation. But now Egypt has a king who did not know Joseph. And in his insecurity, he will come to look upon these multiplying Israelites as threats, and as subhuman beasts of burden. Does this sound familiar to anything else that happened in history? In this sense, Pharaoh emerges in Exodus full of violence and vainglory as a kind of Satan-like figure who proactively resists the kingship of God Almighty. So that's the first answer to this question. What does it mean in Exodus 2.25 when it says that God knew? Well, that unlike Pharaoh, God knows them. God sees them. God is aware of their suffering and remembers his promise to their ancestors. The Israelites are not just some anonymous slaves or some kind of annoying multiplicative nuisance that we need to deal with through population control. God knew. But there's a second and more expansive sense in which we ought to understand the affirmation that God knew. And for this, we get a hint from the other name given to Jesus in Matthew 1. What was the other name given? Emmanuel. God with us. Because what we come to learn in the fullness of time, in the fullness of biblical history, is that God himself truly knew our sufferings and groanings and misery from the inside, beloved. From the inside. He didn't simply stand aloof in some distant heaven. In Christ, God himself felt the sting of the whip and the yoke of oppression. This is really what the incarnation of Jesus Christ is all about. It's not just about some sort of quaint story about a baby in a manger. It's about the God-man bridging the gap between heaven and earth. In this sense, Jesus is the ultimate hyphenated hero. In him, God lovingly assumed our full humanity, and the word became flesh, John 1.14, through And though an eternal citizen of heaven, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And that's because in the glory of his gracious love for us, in the glory of God's gracious love for every one of us, sinners and flawed though we may be, Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. This is the God we meet in the face of Jesus Christ. The God who looked at the groanings of his people and knew the God of justice, the hyphenated hero, and the true and unblemished Savior. There is none like him. O come, let us adore him. Amen.